So tonight I'd like to speak about the happiness of the Buddha. I'd like to begin, because this is a talk on happiness, with a teaching that uh, I'm very fond of, a secret teaching, from the venerable Calvin of Calvin and Hobbes. Calvin is, in this particular teaching, he's climbing a tree with his friend Hobbes, and he says, I suppose the secret to happiness is learning to appreciate the moment. I, for example, he goes on, take great pleasure in being right here, right now, doing what we're doing. Then in the next caption, Hobbes responds, Of course, you're supposed to be at school. (laughs) And Calvin responds, I couldn't appreciate those moments. (laughs) So this theme will run through this discourse tonight. But I would actually like to use the, the historical figure called the Buddha, the um, prince in India who became the Buddha, which means awakened one or awake. Uh, I'd like to use the example of his life as another human being like the rest of us to describe how his understanding, his experience and understanding of happiness evolved through the many stages of his life and really gave a a very clear map of what the, um, at least one way of talking about the path of meditation and the possibility of awakening through spiritual inquiry in a meditative way. I want to begin by reading a Zen, I guess you could call it a Zen poem, a poem by a wonderful Japanese monk named Ryokan that speaks to the realization of the Buddha. And then I'll try to fill in the gaps as we go along. Again, this is another secret teaching, so you have to pay close attention. Buddha is your mind. And the way goes nowhere. Don't look for anything but this. If you point your cart north when you want to go south, how will you ever arrive? Buddha is your mind, and the way goes nowhere. So you may get a sense right from the beginning of this particular discourse that the happiness of the Buddha is different in some way, than our normal conception of happiness, our normal view of happiness. And the Buddha was very concise about what he considered the two major different kinds of happiness that human beings can experience and do experience. One he called, and I'm going to use the Pali word just so you can kind of remember the difference. One he called Lokiya Sukha. Now, the, Buddha, this, the Buddha's name, he was actually called Sukhiya. You heard this before? Sukhiya means the happy one. Now, usually people think of Buddhism, they say, oh, teachings about suffering. But the Buddha was called Sukhiya, the happy one. So you'll hear this word Sukha a lot. You'll also hear the word Dukkha, which is, you could say, the opposite of, of Sukha and we fluctuate in our lives between sukha and dukkha. And, then, and often together they come as sukha-dukkha. So. so the first kind of happiness that the Buddha talked about, he called lokiya-sukha. Lokiya means worldly, of the world. The worldly, everyday kind of happiness but the, ha- the Lokiya Sukha means 
the happiness that depends on satisfying some hunger, depends on getting what you want. Whether getting that beautiful meal that you want, or seeing that beautiful sight, seeing that friend that you've been waiting to see, it's the happiness that depends on satisfying certain conditions. When the conditions are present, when things go our way, we experience that form of happiness. When they don't, we experience dukkha. We, ex- we don't experience that happiness. He contrasted this with the second kind of happiness, which more points in the direction of the, the happiness of an awakened heart or awakened mind, the happiness of a Buddha. He called this lokutara sukha. Lokutara sukha means the happiness of freedom. It means unstuck from the world. It means a happiness that doesn't depend on what's going on. A happiness or a sense of well-being that pervades even the difficulties of our life. Even that, that condition where someone is cutting you off in traffic. It's a sense of well-being that is independent. I have a few brief descriptions, definitions. One is the happiness that is not free, lokiya sukha, that we talked about. The other one, lokutra sukha, the happiness that is, um, that, is, um, that is independent or free. The happiness of slavery, the happiness of freedom. So the image you may get of is somehow separating out or unsticking from the world, but try not to think of it as separating. It means to... It more lokutra sukha has that spirit of relaxing, of letting go, of letting be, as is. So now we have this prince from India, 2,500 years ago, who, relative to the times and the place, lived in Marin County. <laughs> and got up every day in his early years of development experiencing what we often joke about here in the in Dharma circles as the perfect Marin County day. Now our version of it is you get up, you look at your beloved, you have a, a wonderful sexual encounter, then you roll out of bed with each other into the hot tub and then you have your you have your your mixture of organic fruits and vegetables, then you look into the eyes of your beloved again, then you go into the hot tub again, and then you may make your California cuisine lunch and go to the water and have a round of tennis, then another round of whatever it is. And you, and you call yourself happy. And of course, it sounds pretty good, doesn't it? But unfortunately, it hasn't really given anyone lokutra sukha. This is, we'll talk more about this. So you think of, of Prince Siddhartha as living in Marin County. And he's noticing that there is just a constant availability of pleasure in his life relative to everyone else. Anything that he can imagine he can have. But he starts to feel a little restless. And I realize I'm preaching to the choir here because you've gotten a little restless, otherwise you wouldn't be here tonight. And you've had, relative to the rest of the world, we do, an enormous uh, privilege and luxury and amount, of, and amount of varieties of pleasure, just unknown in the history of the world. Yet still, there's some restlessness. What happened to this particular prince in India is that He lived in this world of sense pleasures, and he he got restless, and then fortunately one day, in the course of several days, as the story goes, he had the good fortune, or you might say difficult fortune, of of confronting, of encountering what he came to called the Four Heavenly Messengers. Have you heard about these before? The Four Heavenly Messengers, they are heavenly messengers 
because they have the effect of waking us up, of cracking us open, not unlike what 9-11 did for many of us, for many people who otherwise were very absorbed in, uh, in their internal dialogue, in their internal drama. All of a sudden there was a crack and a sense of intimacy with life and a questioning about you know, what makes us happy and what will, where do we find relief in the middle of this. So in his case, he saw a very sick person, someone who was very ill. He saw a, an extremely old person. The person who was quite ill was very similar in age to him. And he asked himself, you know, and it seems crazy when you read these stories, that here is a person who at this age, he was 29, and he somehow was shocked by seeing an extremely sick person. But this is very symbolic of how we tend to not see sickness and old age. And in the case of his third heavenly messenger that he encountered, was a a corpse, a dead person. And it turned his mind. It says, he said to himself, all of this incredible pleasure, this world of the joy of connecting with, with people, the joy of family, the joy of solitude, so many pleasures in this world, so much of the happiness of sense pleasures, which is the place where most of us live. But it seems like it doesn't last very long. And there must be, in the midst of this sea of change and birth and death and all this, there must be somewhere within this, at least I want to know, I'm speaking as the Buddha right now, I want to find a reliable refuge. I want to find something unshakable in the midst of this world that is born and dies over and over. I was thinking just now of the, the Wiley's Dictionary definition of birth, the leading cause of death. <laughs> it's true, but somehow it, we forget. Somehow we forget. So fortunately, he saw these three heavenly messengers and they turned his mind toward, inward. They turned his mind toward the Dharma. Toward the Dharma means toward truth, toward the way of things, toward seeing things the way they are. And fortunately, he saw a fourth heavenly messenger, which was in the form of a, of a mendicant or a, a monastic, a renunciate, that symbolically represents someone who had begun to swim against the stream of the world, a different way, instead of going uh, out of oneself continually in search for the next pleasure, that person had turned inward. And he, he happened to hear of some good teachers who taught this way of, of the interior life, of inquiry, meditation. And so he very happily, with a lot of passion, because he had been touched so deeply, knowing that all those three things, sickness, old age, and death, would happen to him, he went to his father and said, and by the way, he was supposed to go into his father's business, which was being a king. And he realized he had no interest in expanding a kingdom, in having more stuff, symbolically. And he even went to his father and said, if I have to be a king, no, a day upon the throne would be like sitting on a bed of coals if there's no peace in my heart. So let me go. So he he took off and started practicing meditation. So you can see at this juncture, he has left the first kind of pleasure of the senses. He's decided that there's some defect. This is why, to me, this is very inspiring, because we are constantly inundated with the impulse, with the, the media machine that wants us to stay stuck in the world, wants to stay, to stay bound in the world of ever-changing pleasures of the senses. I brought a few examples of, of how even our, our media tries to use spirituality 
to seduce us into continuing this search within the world of pleasure for happiness. This is from a modern publication. Some of you have seen this before, of course. There's a little monastic, a little monk here. On the top it says, for centuries, people have journeyed thousands of miles in search of insight. In parentheses, pity they didn't think to have it delivered. (laughs) It continues. What is the meaning of life? What is the path to eternal wisdom? What is yin and what is yang? Some believe the answers lie at the roof of the world, a remote mountaintop in Tibet, a lost valley in Nepal. Mind you, the journey there is no easy thing. There are rivers to be crossed, gorges to be spanned, all manner of frightful weather to be endured. Might we suggest a less arduous course of action to gain the insights you seek? Might we suggest a subscription to the Wall Street Journal? (laughs) I didn't make this up. And then, of course, playing on our periodic reflections on the fact of sickness, old age, and death, but knowing that that might seduce us into, into spending a little money while we're here, this is from one of our stereo companies. It says, buy a Pioneer car stereo now, because someday you'll be dead. (laughs) Well, I could go on. Well, here's one from... uh, from a car company, because in large print, because peace and quiet aren't going to come looking for you. Subtext, your brother-in-law is staying another two weeks. 9-11 puts you on hold, in more ways than one. The cable company didn't show up again. That's life. If you want peace and quiet, you have to find ways to make it happen, like Avalon. It's Toyota's ultimate way to escape in comfort and get ready for your next dose of the real world. Sogil Rinpoche put it very, in a very direct, kind of harsh way at what happens to us when we get caught in Lokia Sukha, in, this, in the world of of tethering our well-being to just the pleasures of our senses. He says, Sometimes I think that the greatest achievement of modern culture is its brilliant selling of samsara and its barren distractions. This is fierce. Modern society seems to me a celebration of all the things that lead away from the truth, make truth hard to live for, and discourage people from even believing that it exists. And to think that all this springs from a civilization that claims to adore life, but actually starves it of any real meaning, that endlessly, endlessly speaks of making people happy, but in fact blocks their way to the source of real joy. This modern samsara feeds off an anxiety and depression that it fosters and trains us all in, and carefully nurtures with a consumer machine that needs to keep us greedy to keep going. Samsara is highly organized, versatile, and sophisticated. It assaults us from every angle with its propaganda and creates almost an almost impregnable environment of addiction around us. The more we try to escape, the more we seem to fall into it, the traps it's so ingenious at setting for us. As the 18th century Tibetan master Jigpa Lingpa said, Mesmerized by the sheer variety of experiences, of perceptions, beings wander endlessly astray in samsara's vicious cycle. Obsessed then with false hopes, dreams, and ambitions, with 
which promise happiness but lead only to misery. We are like people crawling through an endless desert, dying of thirst. And, And all that samsara holds out to us to drink is a cup of salt water designed to make us even thirstier. Pretty bleak, huh? Now the Buddha was clear to say that this world of sense pleasures is marvelous in that it is a fruit, it is the result of living a good life, of living a harmless life. That the fruit of the, the capacity to experience the pleasure of the world comes from, from a mind that's not reverberating from the effects of our actions. It's called, he says, it, it arises as a result of what he called purity of action, being non-harming. So it's no accident that we've had the pleasure of the world. And the pleasure is not the problem. Comfort, pleasure, is enjoy are actually factors of enlightenment. They're the enlightenment factors. The problem isn't with the pleasure, but it's the devotion to pleasure. It's the devotion to this world of of pleasures that are fleeting in nature and actually because they're fleeting they're insatiable and tend to have the effect of making us hungrier. And then our identities form around this hunger and our thoughts, as you may have noticed, start having the flavor of something's not right. I'm not enough. It's not just there's something wrong, there's something wrong with me. There's this sense of dissatisfaction and anxiety because our happiness, our sense of well-being has gotten so tethered to what's next. Did you notice tonight? Waiting to see what would happen. Even waiting for the talk even. I can't believe it, but waiting for the talk. Waiting for the end of the sitting. Did anybody notice that tonight? This is a, this is a, a strong habit for most of us. And this is where we've forgotten that the, that the happiness of the Buddha is right where we're sitting. Because our mind starts continually going into the kind of virtual world of the imagined future to seek, to seek the next pleasure that we think will make us happier than we are. One of my favorite teachers, Sri Nisargadatta Maharaj, says, nothing can make you happier than you are fundamentally that all search for happiness is misery and leads to more misery, that the only happiness worth the name is the natural happiness of conscious being, of being present. So easy to forget. You know, we, I'd say most of us have a, a list of the things that we feel like we have to check off in order to have relief. The open secret of meditation practice, of the, all the wisdom teachings, are that happiness is your nature. And that if you come to know that, if you settle back into the moment and get in touch with this natural great peace, and stabilize it, steady it, you're likely to have a lot less anxiety and fear about the future. We burden the future with the demand that it has to make us happy. And consequently, there's always that tension, because maybe it won't. But if you know that this happiness in this sense of peace is your nature, it makes it much less fearful to move through life, to be open, receptive. So the Buddha called this this um, attachment to the world, the happiness of sense pleasures, he called it misplaced faith. The faith that will actually bring us some kind of ultimate relief, but it doesn't. So in his case, and maybe this has inspired you in your own practice, if you've ever learned what the Buddha did to deal with this sense of dissatisfaction, is he went and started meditating. And elements of what we did tonight were a central part of how he practiced. He sat quietly, he took a a fairly upright posture, and he gathered his mind and body together through mindfulness of breathing. And what the teachers that he was working with were teaching were 
what the teachers were teaching was whatever could happen if you just focused on one thing. They were teaching concentration meditation, which is definitely part of what we do here. It's not the whole thing, though. And very quickly, in his case, of course, he had a strong passion to find out what was more reliable than the way he'd been living before. Very quickly, his mind entered into states of composure and concentration, otherwise known as samadhi, where his mind had what he called an unmixed happiness, where his mind was steady, body and mind were harmonious. You may have even tasted it in moments tonight when your mind settled down for a few moments. Did you notice? A little relief. Mind, body come together. So this is not just the, in the world of Buddhas. We are all Buddhas. In fact, my, my friend Surya says we're just sleeping Buddhas. And you know, the idea is to become awakened Buddhas. In his case, though, he discovered that this happiness, this pleasure of a mind that is well composed, that he called a, a, a kind of transcendent happiness, was far superior to the happiness of the ordinary pleasures of life, as delicious as they are, as delicious as that, that perfect Marin County day, or even the simple pleasures of walking in nature or anything, as delicious as that is, the happiness of a mind that is composed and collected or concentrated is far superior. Why? Because it can be sustained for long periods of time. It's not fleeting. But interestingly enough, after this was all that was being taught at the time of the Buddha, was this happiness of a concentrated mind. And the Buddha, in his, in his state of inquiry and curiosity and his discerning mind realized that, you know, this is interesting. This is very wonderful, very pleasurable, but eventually this state of concentration will pass away. It's not a permanent state. It's, therefore, it's subsumed in that umbrella called dukkha. Dukkha means the basic unsatisfactoriness of the world of, of change. The unreliability, the sense that because things change, you can't hold on to them. You can't find anything lasting. So this was, uh, at this point, he was on his own. Because no one taught anything more than a mind that's very concentrated. So even though it was a superior kind of happiness than the happiness of ordinary sense pleasures, he saw that there were defects to it. It was limited in that it passes away. Eventually. So at this point, he went off on his own. Actually, before he went off on his own, he decided to hang out with some people who were doing very serious ascetic practices, not spirit rock style practices. They were starving themselves, and if you've noticed the food here, it's, it's, this is definitely the upper middle path, not the, the middle path. <laughs> Anyway, he tried the, the self-mortification, the, the, the ascetic practices, and what he realized fairly quickly was that, well, the idea was that if you could, if you could deny your body attention, that your spirit would somehow lift out and you'd be, become liberated that way. But all that he discovered is that he became tight. He became sick and tired and really unable to meditate. And he had the good fortune of remembering a time when he was a very young boy. And he was resting, I think it was either, some stories say it was, he was age six, some say he was age three, some say he was age nine. But he remembered being in the prone position, lying very comfortably under a cherry apple tree of some sort. And his body was well fed, his mind was serene. And this indicates that it's very important to have a certain serenity, that relaxation is an essential ingredient in the awakening process, in the mind that relaxes and releases, in the heart that, um, that is free. So he remembered that time, and he realized, this is not for me. And this, this kind of uh, rigid, this rigidity of self-mortification is 
I think where the Buddha got the notion, at least one of the notions, of the middle way. He saw that the, somewhere the path had to fall somewhere between <coughs> this indulgence or too much devotion to the world of, of feeding of the wanting mind, of the pleasures of the senses, somewhere between that and some degree of renunciation. Because if we're com- continually lost in the, in the wheel of, of samsara, it just keeps us spinning, keeps us restless, keeps us in that virtual world of waiting for the imagined future that never arrives. So he took food. And <coughs> he became, once again, strong enough to practice and talked a lot about how the conditions for practice, it's, it's good to practice when your body is, is healthy, if you can. Of course, it's still valuable when you're not healthy. But he described a lot about how the part of right effort is, to be, the, is the physical effort to be able to be with your experience. So anyway, he took food, and he sat down, and he decided that because there was no other teacher around, he'd gone beyond what any teacher could tell him, he decided not to get up until he found a reliable refuge, until he saw the truth. And then he again aroused his concentration, using that element that allowed him to have that kind of composure that he had before. And he made this fierce resolution that he wasn't going to get up until he was, he was realized And in a sense, when we actually decide that we're going to sustain our practice, and this could be the case of any commitment that you make in your life, any decision to stay till the end of the evening, the end of a day long, the end of a retreat, you know, which people often contemplate, "Mm, this is not going so well, maybe I'll go home. The commitment to stay actually becomes, you could say, a hot fire. It requires that you actually deal with what, would no, what you would normally run away from this moment by running after something else, what you would normally distract yourself from. So in this case, he, by committing to sit still and use his concentration, he was faced with what are called the, the voices of, of the god Mara. Have you heard about Mara? Mara is that voice in each of our minds that says, who do you think you are? Anything but here. Anything but now. Go feed your wanting mind. Distract yourself at any cost. You don't deserve this. Who do you think you are thinking you can meditate and, and truly be happy? You don't deserve it. You know, all the different voices of the different hindrances that arise the different doubts. Did anybody have any doubt in your practice tonight? In your, pra- your life practice today? It's unbelievable how, how we even get through the day. How the simplest experience... In fact, you know, the, the truth is that life's pretty simple when you look at, look at it on present evidence, just what's happening in the moment. But our mind fabricates this enormous drama, and half the time a simple experience turns into this case for the prosecution against ourselves, and everyone else for that matter, and, and we usually follow these things. And so the Buddha, because he had, as, as the prince, because he had this aroused concentration and steadiness, and some degree of mindfulness and comprehend, clear comprehension of what was happening, began instead of following the different thoughts and images that came into his mind, the doubts and the views about himself that could never capture who he truly is, as none of our views about ourselves could never capture what this immediate experience is. But as they came up, he began to see, this is, this is not me, these voices. This is not mine. This is not myself. And as he began to, to, you could say, disengage from all the things that came into his mind, and this is really part of what happens when we keep quiet for long enough, when we commit ourselves to being present. So our minds become steady, and we start to notice the flow of experience. 
We start to notice the flow of sensations. I'm sure you did when you sat tonight. You start to see the flow of, notice the flow of moods and emotions, thoughts and images, sounds coming and going. Just that flow drifting through the mind. So as, as the, the Buddha began to see the arising and passing of the different things that he would normally follow, and his mind was no longer moving toward or away from them, no longer making its happiness dependent on what was coming into his mind, his mind relaxed. And he had a, a flash of insight in that moment, that this was, in fact, this moment of just seeing life come and go, how it is, was what he called the first taste of freedom. The first taste of lokutra sukha, the happiness of, that is not conditioned, that's not dependent on what's going on. The acknowledgement that our minds, including the mind of the Buddha, even the mind of the Buddha after his awakening, still assaulted by the voices of doubt. But he no longer believed them. So he began to become clear and clear that happiness isn't about what's happening in our life. It has nothing to do with what's happening in our life. The happiness of a Buddha, that is. Of course, the happiness of pleasure has to do with having pleasure. But the happiness of the Buddha doesn't have to do with what's going on how we're feeling even, but how we are with that experience, how we relate to that experience. I've been testing this out. <laughs> because, I, you know, in, up until the last five years or so, I hadn't suffered a lot of great losses in my life. I'd certainly been depressed at times and gone through ups and downs. But I had some pretty serious losses in my family. And I wretched and grieved like every person. But there was, in the midst of it, a pervading sense of okayness. A pervading sense that this is what's happening. It was absent more than in my younger years of the view, this shouldn't be happening right now. This shouldn't be happening to me. What's wrong with this picture? What is happening is happening. So anyway, this isn't, it didn't stop here. But this was certainly a break in, in the, it was a, a shift in the view, a shift in understanding, where the, the sense of happiness was no longer dependent on the perfect Marin County day or even the perfect meditation. It wasn't about getting your mind to quiet down. It was about not being bothered by your mind and seeing when you're not bothered by it, it quiets by itself. And then it gets noisy again. One of my favorite uh, passages from another Tibetan teacher named Gendon Rinpoche, which I'll actually read the whole poem to you later. He says, in describing how we should be with the flow of our experience, he says, he says let the entire game happen on its own, springing up and falling back like waves. And notice how all things vanish and reappear, time without end. We really like that vanishing. We don't necessarily like the reappearing. But the happiness of a Buddha, the happiness of freedom, is open and welcoming of whatever happens. So this presented a very interesting quandary for the Buddha, because at this point, it was clear to him, sitting there, mind composed, very mindful of the flow of experience, it was clear to him that he could not locate himself in any of those changing thoughts or images or sensations. He could see very clearly, nothing of that was, this is not me, this is not mine, this is not myself. And in fact, his most, his most condensed instruction that he gave 
after his awakening, was encapsulated in one phrase where he said, nothing whatsoever, this is, I found this very helpful, nothing whatsoever should be clung to as I mere mind. Whoever has heard this truth has heard the entire teaching. Whoever has practiced this has practiced the entire teaching. Whoever has realized this has realized the entire teaching. So he saw that this was not himself. He saw that none of what came into his mind, no feeling he had, no thought, no experience, no delicious meal at Chez Panisse or wherever, none of it. He could say, this is mine, this is me. (laughs) The quote, okay. Nothing whatsoever should be clung to as I, me, or mine. Whoever has heard this has heard the entire teaching. Whoever has practiced this has practiced the entire teaching. Whoever has realized this has realized the entire teaching. So... Sorry about the mic. So we're still at the, at the place where the Buddha is, he's seen that his mind and his body are not a reliable refuge. But his mind was resting in what he called the joy of equanimity, this, higher, this taste of freedom, this higher happiness than the happiness of sense pleasures, higher happiness than the happiness of concentration, resting easily in this great joy of equanimity. And as his mind withdrew from these different experiences that he'd normally defined himself by, he relaxed more deeply into this sense of knowing. And in a flash of insight, you might even sense it as I say these words, his mind turned the other way, it enfolded on itself. And in a flash of insight, he realized that the very nature of his mind, the very innermost nature of his mind, was that reliable refuge that he had longed so desperately for. And he was naturally quite stoned. Did you hear that? He was stoned. And thought that trying to see his, you know, the fact that, his, that the nirvana, this highest happiness, the happiness of freedom, was none other than his own mind. He didn't think anybody could get it. It was too subtle. It was like trying to see your own face. But then he was visited again with a vision. And he was instructed, as it's told, that there are those, and I include everyone in this room, there are those with just a little dust on their eyes who, if pointed toward themselves, could realize the same unshakable, unconditioned Lokutra Sukha that the Buddha did. That this is truly the nature of all beings, not just Buddhas. We are all Buddhas. So the key in the opening of our mind, in the relaxing of our heart, is to see things the way they are. And in order to see things the way they are, we have to be able to, in some way, in some form, and Vipassana meditation is one of those forms, in some way to see the difference between what's actually happening in a moment and the stories we tell ourselves about it. The Buddha said there are basically six things happening. He says the whole world exists in the, within this fathom-long body. Without this body, no world. But basically, the whole world is, as he said, the eye and visible objects. So the eye and the consciousness of seeing and, and what is seen, the ear and what's heard, 
the tongue and what's tasted, the nose and what's smelled, the body and different sensations, the mind and the different mental objects, thoughts and images, moods and emotions. That's really all. The rest is a story that we tell ourselves. Unless we're able to somehow slow down enough to see the difference between just that simplicity of being without exaggeration, it's very difficult not to be swimming in that endless ocean of of waiting and becoming and hoping, endlessly lost in that imagined future and missing the ever-present available happiness, contentment of this present moment. So as is often the case, when someone awakens in such a profound way, they let out a song of realization. I'm going to share a couple with you tonight, and I just thought of another one to share. But first, the one from the Buddha. This is his utterance when he, when he finally decided to get up off his cushion and start to talk to people. He said this, Through many births, in the wandering on, I ran, seeking but not finding, the maker of this house. Dukkha is birth again and again. O housemaker, you've been seen. You shall not make a house again. All your beams are broken up, rafters of the ridge destroyed, the mind gone to the unconditioned, to cravings destruction, cessation it has come. So when he says cravings destruction, it means not looking not jumping out of himself in search. So every moment, I get really passionate about this, every moment that we're just present is a drop in the bucket of nirvana. It's a momentary nirvana. It's a momentary cessation, falling away of craving, of grasping, of aversion, of delusion so easily overlooked. And notice in this moment of being present, not craving, not, you may be, you may have a flash of craving, but after the last one has passed and before the next one arises, being present here. Notice how it is. Notice what happens when for a moment in the span of your life, you let go of the imagined future, let go of the imagined past, and just let yourself rest here. What dawns instantly? What's missing? What I've found is what's missing is my suffering, my mental suffering. What dawns is, at least anecdotally, people often say, ease, quiet, peace, spaciousness. You know, people have all sorts of words. So easy to miss. One of my teachers used to say, all desires are fulfilled in this moment. But it's so, we're so conditioned to to overshoot this, to overlook this. Albert Camus put it this way, in the midst of winter, I learned that there was in me an invincible summer. So you can hear from, perhaps from these words and from, this, from the path of the Buddha that he was on a, a path. But it's also clear that the way went nowhere. And that the pra- part of practice is not to look to, for anything but this. This is from T.S. Eliot. And the end of our exploring will be to arrive where we began and know the place for the first time. I want to close with the more expanded version of the poem from Gendon Rinpoche. You can take this as meditation instructions. 
It's called free and easy. Happiness cannot be found through great effort and willpower, but is already present in open relaxation and letting go. Don't strain yourself. There's nothing to do or to undo. Whatever momentarily arises in the body-mind has no real importance at all and has little reality whatsoever. Why identify with and become attached to it, passing judgment upon it and ourselves? Far better to simply let the entire game happen on its own, springing up and falling back like waves, without changing and manipulating anything. And notice how everything vanishes and reappears, magically, again and again, time without end. Only our searching for happiness prevents us from seeing it. It's like a vivid rainbow which you pursue without ever catching, or a dog chasing its own tail. Although peace and happiness do not exist as an actual thing or place, it is always available and accompanies you every instant. Don't believe in the reality of good and bad experiences. They're like today's ephemeral weather, like rainbows in the sky. Wanting to grasp the ungraspable, you exhaust yourself in vain. As soon as you open and relax this tight fist of grasping, infinite space is there, open, inviting, comfortable. Make use of this spaciousness, this freedom and natural ease. Don't search any further. Don't go into the tangled jungle looking for the great awakened elephant who is already resting quietly at home in front of your own hearth. Nothing to do or to undo, nothing to force, nothing to want, and nothing missing. Everything happens by itself. Emaho, which means marvelous. So let's sit for a moment and then Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.